This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Good morning. My name is Matt Woodley, one of the priests here at Church of the Resurrection. Um, last week, we started a sermon series on the book of Psalms uh, that we call Prayers for Real Life. And uh, we're focusing on some of the messier, grittier, uh, less pleasant, less well-known Psalms um, because they're all part of how we pray. And as we said last week, there's nothing that you cannot bring into the presence of the living God. No disordered desire, no hurt, no anger, no uh, problem, no situation in your life that is too big or too messy or too scary for the living God. And that's what these prayers teach us. Um, so we're going to take a look at one of these psalms today. But before we do that, let's pray. So Lord, the power of your Holy Spirit, come and open our hearts up to you. Thank you for the gift of the book of Psalms, these 150 prayers that Jews and Christians have been praying for thousands of years, Lord, and that the church prays now in and through Jesus. And so come, Holy Spirit, open our hearts to you. Draw us closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm going to tell you about a dream I had a couple months ago. This is all true, well, with some slight embellishment, but the outline of the dream is basically true. So in this dream, I'm in my house and in my living room, and I'm having a Bible study with some really nice church people, okay? Most of these people are people I recognize from my first church in Barnum, Minnesota. The Finnefrocks are not there, but there are people there like Janice Mapes, who always used to bake me fresh cinnamon rolls, and there's Mae Hansen. She's there, and she always used to slip me five bucks on my way out after visiting her and say, Woodley, you need a haircut. This will help. And then there's uh, maybe Howard Ballou, the 82-year-old farmer who swore by his Guernsey cattle, and he's, he's in there. And so there's all these really nice people. I hear this commotion downstairs, though. So I go downstairs to investigate, and I see these teenage boys in my house, and they're like robbing me. And I am just furious. And I try to catch them, but they're too quick for me, and they run away. And as they're running away, I, remember, this is a dream. So in this dream, I'm like throwing things at them, and then I'm yelling things that if you've ever seen Liam Neeson in the first movie Taken, I'm saying things like, I'm going to catch you guys. I'm going to hunt you down. And when I find you, I'm going to break your arms. You're going to be so sorry, et cetera, et cetera, other violent acts that I'm threatening against them at the top of my lungs. And then I go back upstairs to the Bible study, and I go, oh, so where were we? Were we at verse 3? And they're all looking at me with a shock and this appall and disgust. And I'm wondering, why did God give me that dream? So I'd have a great way to introduce Psalm 3, obviously. So a perfect way. So when we get into the Psalms, the Psalms of lament, the Psalms of cursing, also called the imprecatory Psalms, these Psalms of just sometimes raw, seething anger, it just feels so inappropriate. It feels like setting a stink bomb off in the middle of church. So we bring them into the church. We bring them into our, our, our relationships. We bring them into our res group. We bring them into our church service. And we're not quite sure what to do with them. So turn with me into your bulletin. 
because it's printed there, or you can turn in your Bible to page 448. That would be even better, but you can also follow along. So look at the last part of verse 7. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And the psalmist is acting like this is a good thing. And you think, well, that's not very nice. And I say, oh, that's mild compared to other cursing psalms. Psalm 109, may his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers pl plunder the fruits of his toils. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. And you think, this is in the Bible? This is like we're supposed to pray this way? Why and how? And I also want to ask, what is at stake if we don't pray this way, at least sometimes? What is at stake if we don't admit that sometimes we want to pray that way? Well, all the answers are found in Psalm 3. So, as the great African-American preacher Dr. Gardner-Taylor used to say, let's take a walk through the neighborhood of the text. Let's take a walk through the neighborhood of Psalm 3 and look at it just simply verse by verse. So Psalm 1 and 2, I said last week that that is the, the, the front porch to the book of Psalms, to this book of prayers. Psalm 3 is when we first step inside to God's house of prayer. And notice, we first step inside, and the first thing we're sort of instructed to pray is not, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, as in Psalm 27, nor is it, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God of hosts, Psalm 84. It is Psalm 3, verse 1, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. In the original Hebrew language, it's four words. It's brief. It's urgent. It's emotional. It's intense. And right here, we learn the first rule of prayer. Be direct. Say what you need to say in God's house of prayer. So, in the fine book, How to Talk Minnesotan, which you should all read, there, is, there are three cardinal rules of speaking Minnesotan, and one of them is the art of being indirect. So you never say what you really mean. You say, oh, no trouble. Ha, no, I couldn't possibly take that second piece of pie. No, I, I couldn't put you out. You ran over my foot with your John Deere tractor. It's okay, and you did it intentionally. I'm fine. Ah, really, no problem. That's the art of being indirect. Thank God for the Jews. Thank God for the Psalms. Put it out there with God. So God says, I'm going to tell you how to talk to me because you won't believe this and you won't do this. So I'm going to tell you how to talk to me. You come and you say, oh Lord, how many are my foes. Psalm 3 is a man written by a man who is in trouble. David, and he's not afraid to admit it. Note the little, the little 
uh, the little part right at the top of the psalm where it says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. If you're familiar with that or you're not familiar with that, let me just give you a little background, a little context. So this is a real historical story. David's son, Absalom, his narcissistic, power-hungry, young or son has started a coup against David. He's lied about him. He's slandered him. He's maligned him. He's pit people against him. And, and now he's trying to take power away from David. And David has been driven, and, and Absalom has amassed an army, and David has been driven from the palace. He's on the run. This man of power is now powerless. This man who is a warrior is now a, a potential victim of violence. This man who was invincible now feels very unsafe, and he's outnumbered. So he says in the rest of verse 1 and 2, many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You cannot read the Psalms without coming across enemies. They're everywhere in the Psalms. One scholar has identified 94 different kinds of enemies in the book of Psalms. So there are beasts and snakes and armies and evildoers and bloodshed men and, and arrows and disease and death. Enemies are everywhere. We don't like this kind of world, but part of the Psalms are teaching us, don't be naive. The world can be a bad place. In particular, there's three enemies, three kinds of enemies that just pop out in the book of Psalms. Let me give them to you. First, there are lying enemies. About 50 Psalms, or 50 times in Psalms, at least refer to liars, people who will lie about you. So Psalm 12, everyone lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and double heart. Psalm 52 talks about those who love lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O oh, deceitful tongue. Now, we would like to think, if I'm a nice person, if I live a good life, if I follow God, people are going to say nice things about me. And the Psalms tell us, don't be so naive. Human beings love to lie. Satan is the father of lies. You don't think someday people could tell lies about you and there's nothing you can do about it? Now, social media has its place. I'm the only priest on staff that's on Facebook. <laughs> so I use it. But social media is like a skid that's greased, which makes it so easy to lie. Now again, not everything on social media is a lie. But the Psalms again are reminding us don't be naive. There are enemies that will lie about you. And then there's violent enemies. That's another huge theme in the book of Psalms. The weak become victims of violence. The poor become victims of violence. So Psalm 10 talks about the, the wicked, the violent, who, who prey on the innocent. They, and, and I quote, they watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion. He lurks that he may seize the poor. Why the poor? Well, just because they can and they're vulnerable. He, he seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed and sink down. So in our world, 
in many places around the globe, women become victims of violence. People are trafficked for jobs or for other even worse reasons. The unborn become victims of violence every day in our nation. So there's violent enemies, people of bloodshed. And then there are intimate enemies. Psalm 55, the psalmist says, it's almost like he stops talking to God and he's like he's talking to his friend who's probably not there, but he's having this imaginary conversation with his friend and he says, it's you, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked. And now we're enemies. You ever had that happen? A friend, a parent, a child, a spouse. You used to sleep together in the same bed, and now you're enemies? Doesn't that, does that rip your heart out? Does that make you angry? Does it make you feel hurt? Of course it does. Enemies, they can hurt you, they can betray you, they can slander you, they can commit acts of violence against the helpless. And the Psalms are saying, this stuff is real. And ultimately, here's what the enemies do. They say there is no salvation for him in God. So you personally, they want to drag you down. And also, as Christians, we believe that we have a spiritual enemy. Satan, the devil, that wants to separate us from God. He is a separator, and he's a deceiver, and he's the father of lies. And he wants to say, did God really say? Did God really promise that? Is, isn't God just a figment of a, your imagination? And he wants to drag you down into discouragement and condemnation and self-loathing and ultimately despair. And let me just say that the risen Jesus, if that's the way you're feeling, the risen Jesus wants to meet you here today. Please don't leave without opening your heart to the risen Jesus some point in this service who wants to lift you up. As we're going to see, he's the lifter of your head. So Psalm 3 is a man in trouble. He has enemies. He has pain. He's hurting. He's angry. Look at verse 3. But you, two of the most beautiful words in the Bible, but you. These but you phrases are sprinkled throughout the Bible. You find them in Ephesians. You find them in Isaiah. But you, this is going on over here. These people are doing this. This is what I'm doing. But you. I'm in trouble, I'm on the run, I'm hurting, I'm angry, I'm guilty, I'm ashamed. But you, who are you to me? When we believe in Jesus, well, who are you to me, Jesus? Look at this, verse 3. David was exposed. He was scared. He was vulnerable. He was under attack. But you are a shield about me. David was ashamed. His life was a mess. 
His family was a mess. Look, his son is trying to kill him. His son wants to oust him from power. You think you have family problems, and maybe you do, but you're not alone. But you are my glory. David's head is literally, he's walking away from the palace. His head is probably down. He's, he's discouraged. He's defeated. Have you ever felt burdened? Have you ever felt crushed by life? You, but you are the lifter of my head. Verse 4, this is the one I cried aloud to, and he answered me from his holy hill. So beautiful. This is the you that we address in prayer. Not an it, but a you who listens to us. And verse 5 is so beautiful. It's like, almost like a little nursery rhyme. These three little phrases. I lay down. Number one, I slept. I woke again. Almost like sing-songy, nursery rhyme-ish. And then... Why was I able to do that? Because the Lord sustained me. He was sustaining me the whole time, even when I didn't see it. How lovely is that? How sweet is that? You know, if you're like me, one of the 40% of Americans that have trouble getting a really consistent good night's sleep, struggle with anxiety, racing mind, feel disoriented, Psalm 127 says, the Lord gives his beloved sleep. I want that. And if you struggle with that, know that you're not alone. Know that the Lord knows that. Re receive prayer for that maybe this morning. Verse 6, there's this shift from the foes to being afraid, being alarmed, being on high alert to, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Like, bring it on. Bring on a thousands, thousands of them. I don't care. And the thing with David is his circumstances have not changed. He's still in trouble. He's still on the run. His son is still trying to take him down. But he met the Lord. Or the Lord met him. It started in verses 1 and 2, by just coming to the Lord, being real before the Lord, and then saying true things back to God about who God is in verse 3. And then there's this shift. He's met the Lord. And I just want to say in this psalm, the psalm is telling us the Lord wants to meet you in your trouble. I was walking in my neighborhood as I often do almost every morning, I ran, run into this guy, a young guy named David. He's going to school. His family owns a restaurant. He's walking his dog. And I, as I walk, I have my little book of psalms, and I like read a verse and pray, read a verse and pray. And so it's my little Bible prayer walk. And he looks at it and he goes, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading my Bible. And he goes, oh, kind of wistfully and guiltily. I used to read my Bible. I just don't have any time anymore. I wouldn't even know where to start. And then I said something that I thought was really profound, and I'm going to tell you why it was profound. I said, you know, David, the Lord is waiting for you. 
he hasn't given up on you. And I thought, Deacon Val is in my head, I think. That sounds like something Deacon Val would say. It's just like I learned from the best, you know. The Lord is waiting for you, and he is. He's waiting for you at his table. He's waiting for you in the Eucharist. He's waiting for you. Now, we think the psalm is going to kind of wind down at this point. This would be a nice place to end, but it doesn't. The psalmist, David, revs up again. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Now, we might think, man, you're really emotional. You just got to calm down a little bit. Just simmer down. Get your emotions in check. Get your hate under control. Get your anger under control. Well, actually, many times, the Psalms are very realistic about human psychology. Sometimes we have to work through the anger, name it, identify as any therapist would tell you, and I see some therapists nodding their heads here, you know, and to, in order to get to the place of letting it go. There's this incredible um, little paragraph in Jane Austen's novel, Persuasion, um, where the main character, Anne, is talking about this person named Mr. Elliot. And Mr. Elliot is described as somebody who was, and I quote, rational, discreet, and polished. There was never any burst of feelings. There was never any indignation or delight in the evil of good or, not, or others. But Anne realizes that there's something off with this guy because she prized the frank, the open-hearted. She felt that she could do so much more depend upon the, the sincerity of those who sometimes said a careless or a hasty thing than of those whose tongue never slipped. And the psalmist is going, ah, man, sometimes just let your tongue slip. But here's the thing. It's not just gratuitous swearing or cursing. It's, notice, it's being prayed before the Lord. It's being brought into his presence in the community of what we now know as the church. And we're praying it together in the psalms. Evil and hurt are never ignored. They're never minimized. They are named. They're wept over. They're raged over. But then they're brought to the Lord and into the church. We bring it into the light before the living God where he can heal it. And then verse 8, we get to this resolution, finally. So there's sort of been these ups and downs, and now there's a re resolution. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing on your people. So the psalm brings us right into the middle of God's salvation story. Now, as Christians, we cannot not read this psalm backwards through Jesus. We cannot extract Jesus out of this psalm. I know there's an original context that we need to pay careful attention to, but there's also our history. And we can't, we, we can't not look at it through Jesus. And we look at it through Jesus, what do we see? We see the Son of God, the Savior of the world, dying on the cross. His enemies have lied about him. He's become a victim of violence. His intimate friends have betrayed him. 
such deep hurt. And the Gospels name it and describe it, but Jesus doesn't hate. Instead, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we see here another chapter in the story of Psalm 3. Not antithetical, but just adding on to it. Yeah, we pray our hurt and our hate, but then we also get to the place of offering forgiveness. But it's not just that. Jesus is not just an example. As he's praying, as he's dying, he's opening the way. He's opening the way for sinners to be forgiven, to be justified, to be reborn, to be adopted as his sons and daughters, to be united to him. So I asked, what's at stake in learning to pray Psalm 3 with Jesus and his church? What's at stake? The gospel is at stake. What kind of God in we believe in is at stake? A God who in grace pursues sinners. Sinners who are sometimes filled with hurt and rage and bitterness and failure and lust and pettiness and unbelief and hardness of heart and shame who sometimes cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? A God who in Jesus pursues us, sinners in all our sinfulness, broken people in all of our brokenness, and desires to lavish us with grace and transform us. That's what's at stake. And what's at stake is what kind of community we become. A museum for perfect people or a hospital for sinners? Some of us are in ER. Some of us are in rehab. Some of us need a heart transplant. Some of us are in the psych unit. Some of us just need just someone to sit by us and listen to us. But we're all sick of heart. Jesus is the doctor, and we're getting better. That's what's at stake. Repenting, healing, growing. So salvation belongs to the Lord. Do not let anyone take that away from you. Do not let anyone take it away from another sinner. Do not let anyone take it away from you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.